My guest today is Russ Meek. He is a professor of Old Testament at William Tennant School of Theology. His research focuses on Old Testament, and uh, our conversation today is going to focus on justice in the Old Testament, and in particular, uh, institutional justice. Russ, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. As of right now, you have, I think, uh, two episodes out and one coming out soon. And uh, when I saw who was on those, I, I thought maybe you got the wrong person asking me to come on. So, uh, so <laughs> you know. no, no, no. So I, so Russ and I met on uh, Twitter where Russ was uh, active in conversations around justice and institutions and uh, the need, to, uh, the need for really for institutional reform in various areas to do with uh, racism and misogyny. Would you say that's a fair characterization, Russ? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and the the prevalence of of some some of these dynamics in conservative white evangelical spaces. One of the tropes, I guess, that gets thrown around by people who favor the status quo is that well, we don't need to talk about justice. We need to talk about biblical justice. That's right. always been sort of strange to me, as though as as though justice and biblical justice are, are so, somehow different. Right. So, yeah, what do you, th- what do you think about that, Russ, just off the bat? Yeah, so <clears throat> that's a great question. I always, I, I've been, um, uh, I, I appreciate some people's um, desire to distinguish or to d- differentiate between things, but it seems like a, what, what's the, uh, the philosophical term, like distinction without a difference or something like that? What uh, I feel like there's a... I think that's, that's uh, something that, it, that's a phrase that gets used a lot in the legal profession, but certainly philosophers can appreciate it. Yeah. 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 We, so, I think philosophy, we would call it a diversion. <laughs> diversion. <laughs> yeah. Like that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I, I was telling you earlier, like, so five years ago or 10 years, you know, five years ago, I, uh, was called a, a social justice warrior for the first time. And, and I was like, I had to go look up what the term meant because I had no idea because, uh, the whole time I thought the, the stuff I was saying, uh, was simply uh, me reading the Old Testament and, and and trying to work out how to apply that to uh, the Christian life. And so when people say like, oh, well, we, we need to distinguish between like uh, biblical justice or social justice or justice or whatever, uh, I'm thinking, well, we're not doing a good job of biblical justice uh, if we're not <laughs> addressing issues that our culture would call uh, social justice. Um, and I really truly cannot understand um, people's aversion to addressing issues like misogyny uh, and racism, especially in my own context, you know, in, in the Southern Baptist Convention. And, you know, one of the things I, that drew me to the Old Testament in, in, to begin with was its concern for justice. So I, I grew up in a really abusive family, um, had a, an abusive stepdad that was, uh, he was a deacon at a, a Southern Baptist church. Mm. And so, uh, and this guy would, I, I mean, I, I won't get into it, just suffice it to say abusive. And um, when I went to the church and talked to him about this, the response from, you know, pastors and other elders there, the pastor, the elders, that was that I wasn't being submissive enough, you know, and my mother wasn't being submissive and, and we, (laughs) and I was being disrespectful and dishonoring to him by even bringing up abuse to people outside of our family. 
And so like I fled, I fled that as soon as I was kind of able to do that. I was in, in high school and I moved in with my dad who was this, uh, you know, I like to describe him as a whiskey for breakfast alcoholic. You know, I can't, I can't tell you the number of times I woke up to the sound of a beer can opening, but that was a safer place for me than living with a deacon at a Southern Baptist church. Wow. And, and yeah. And so when I went to college, I had to wrestle with this faith uh, and, and like, what does it mean to be a Christian? And um, I did like, so I, I became a Christian, like just before college and kind of took with me all of this, this rage and anger at, at this culture uh, that I'd grown up in. Um, and a guy introduced me to the Old Testament. He introduced me to the imprecatory Psalms and said, hey, here's some people who have struggled with the same things. And so you read stuff in, in, in these Psalms, um, like, oh, God, break the teeth in their mouths or these prayers that um, a person would essentially like wither up and die or that his enemies would have um, uh, his enemies would defeat him. And I mean, I mean, the language is, is vicious, like in Psalm 58 or Psalm 137, Psalm 109. Um, and man, that was, that spoke to my heart because like I had grown up in this situation where I couldn't get justice from my family, my stepdad or my, you know, my mother, and I couldn't get justice from the church. And here were people in the Bible, instead of saying, oh, you need to be quiet about that. They were saying like, hey, uh, we need to voice this to God um, because this God actually does care about justice and he does care about people in society who are vulnerable and um, the most exploited in society. And the Old Testament is, is filled with that, right? Um, so that's what started me on this journey of studying the Old Testament to begin with was this like longing for someone somewhere to make things right, you know? But would you say that this longing to make things right, this sense of justice, it's part of the, the law that's written on every human heart that Paul speaks of, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, It's not like we're kind of, we're born with this. Like if you have kids, you know, right. (laughs) uh, That's not fair. It's like the number, the number one, uh, uh, no, number one complaint when they have um, siblings, right? Right, right. Yeah, and we should we should mention uh, that Russ, where did, where did you do your PhD work? Uh, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, right? Which is not it's not known as like a a, a hotbed of liberalism. Is no, it? it's not. No, no, <laughs> it, it it is uh, it is very conservative. So yeah, yeah. yeah I don't <laughs> meet. I, I, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and it, it is where um, it kind of kicked off the conservative resurgence. Um, Ralph Elliott was a uh, Old Testament professor there, and he wrote a very controversial book on uh, Genesis in the 50s. I think it was 58, but I might be wrong. And that that's kind of what was the uh, a, a catalyst for the conservative resurgence. Um, and he was he was fired. But so yeah, that's so the school was kind of like uh, self-consciously aware of the of uh, encroaching liberalism, quote unquote. Right, right. Yeah, you. Um, I don't meet too many Old Testament scholars. I can't think of any Old Testament scholars who, when it comes to, it, like people who focus on Old Testament, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, who uh, sort of, look at claims about justice and institutional justice and say like, yeah, God doesn't care about that. In other words, um, it's not a conservative or liberal thing. It's like, if you understand what's going on in the old Testament, it's Mm -hmm. sort of inescapable. 
Yes. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I would say, I mean, so, you know, my, my field of, of specialization is philosophy. Uh, and so I suppose someone might look at some of the things I care about and some of the things I say and they're like, oh, well, you're just like this, you know, liberal progressive philosopher person. You, you probably just went to grad school and got fed all this stuff. Actually, what brought me around to seeing justice in the way that I do was reading the Bible. <laughs> and reading the Old Testament and trying right. to figure out what it meant. Because to be honest, I, before I approached the Old Testament with a s sensitivity mm -hmm. to concerns about justice, a whole lot of it just didn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. But then once I realized that God cares about institutions and God cares about justice, it was like all of a sudden I I, I read it and I could understand what's going on. Like what I could understand what God was so angry about. Right. Right. Yeah. So Jesus says, you know, when, when the, the guy comes up to him, he's like, what are the two greatest commandments? Right. And he says, or what's the greatest commandment? And he says, love the Lord, your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then there's another one that's just like it. Right. And that's love your neighbor as yourself. And so I'm, I'm working on a commentary right now on the book of Micah. Uh, well, and some other, you know, Jonah, Micah, name and Habakkuk. And if you read, if you read through this lens that Jesus himself gave us of the moat, like what the old Testament is about, like, yes, like I, there's like a Christological uh, Christocentric focus throughout the old Testament. Like, absolutely. It's all pointing forward to and culminates in Jesus. But Jesus tells us himself, like, Hey, this whole thing is about loving God and loving your neighbor. And those two things are so intimately intertwined in the old Testament. Love God, love neighbor. You you simply cannot get away from that. And and so I brought up Micah because I'm I'm working through Micah, and you you read through this book and it is in, imminently concerned with institutions, um, the leadership of Israel, the political leadership, and the religious leadership of Israel. Micah comes down on them so hard because they have committed idolatry. One and two. The, the correlation is in they have also failed to do justice to their neighbors. You can't separate this loving God from loving your neighbor. You just can't do it. Um, if you're, you know, if you're failing at the one, if you're failing to love your neighbor, which means essentially like we'll, we'll get into this later in your questions. Um, so if you're failing to do justice to your neighbor, you are also failing to worship God rightly. Right. And that's demonstrated in how you treat people created in his image. Um, and if you're not worshiping God rightly, so if you're committing idolatry, that's also reflected in the way that you treat your neighbor. <laughs> you know, and so we, you can't separate these 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 two commandments out. It's impossible. Right. And if you go back to the law where it's initially elaborated, there's there's this script for what the people of Israel are supposed to say to God when they show up at the temple. And it's basically like, we've kept all your, like, we've taken care of the poor, right? Right. We, we've, we, we've, uh, we've cared for the orphan and the widow and the exile, uh, the, the, the alien. Yeah. And we've kept all the other laws. Mm -hmm. Right. 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 And, and so here we are to worship. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one of the things that, uh, we're, we're going to get in is looking at, um, of the capital J justice, the subjective justice that we see in the Old Testament law and, and what that 
looks like in terms of like how we are supposed to relate to each other, right? Um, and, and you bring up, you brought up the the orphan, the widow, the exile, or the sojourner, the um, resident alien, however you want to frame like that person. Um, and the Old Testament frames kind of our relationship to God and our relationship to another, to one another, like you mentioned, uh, kind of being obligation based. And I, I think that that's a really helpful way to look at it. Um, but it, I would kind of expand that out to say that it's based on, it's like based on family, right? So we are in a covenant relationship. The Old Testament Israel is in this covenant relationship with God. He brings them out of Israel. He establishes them as his people. He is their Lord or suzerain, um, you would, they would say, and he, they are his, his vassal people, you know? And so kind of he's cast in this role as father and there's children essentially. And their responsibility is to relate to each other like you would in a family. So just like you don't, I, I mean, we take care of people in our in our family. You know, there's this one time when I was a kid, I, I was friends with these two guys, Chris and Brandon, who were twins. And they got into this to this fight with each other. And I was like trying to break it up, um, which is like not a good idea. Right. And so if two brothers are fighting and like I didn't I, I didn't really I, I didn't know you're not supposed to do this, but you don't break up brothers who are fighting because it's really, they, they will turn on you very quickly. Right. Like you, you like try to pull one off. He's like, Hey, get off of my brother. What are you doing? You know? Um, so you relate to it. So God is, establishes this thing so that, they, that the people relate to each other as family members, they take care of one another. And then, um, so it, it kind of expands out from that talking about how we relate to this exile. So you have this covenant community, this people, this family that God establishes, and they're supposed to relate to each other the way that you would relate to your own family. They take care of each other, just like you, Scott, you have a, a son or a daughter. I have a son, a son. You take care of your son, right? You, you, it, it is like in, if you are a healthy, normal functioning human being, you are compelled to take care of your child. Because there, like by virtue, there is no him. way there is no way that I would not exactly die for that little boy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And that is how we, God intends for us to relate to one another. Right. So you don't feel like you're not like, oh, I have to take care of my son because I'm obligated to do it. You take <laughs> care of him because he's your son. Right. Like mm-hmm. that. Like that's the reason. And then but for the people outside of that covenant community, the exile or the sojourner you were talking about. In the law, God says, oh, by the way, don't forget when you were over there in Egypt, he says this repeatedly, don't forget when you were in Egypt, you were slaves and I rescued you out of that. I took you out of slavery and I gave you this other land. So when someone is in your presence who is an outsider, um, a someone not part of this covenant community, you also need to take care of them because I took care of you, you know? And so there's this obligation placed on the people first of all to love one another within their covenant community but second of all to go out of their way to protect the people outside of that covenant community the sojourner the foreigner and then also in addition to that you know you, you mentioned the, the the widow the orphan these people who would typically be exploited in a culture the people who don't have power um god's law makes special provision to take care of them. And, and, you know, to anticipate like one criticism I hear is that, well, like there's like this verse, it's like, Oh, by the way, also like 
you know, a verse saying, don't show favoritism to a poor person. There's like, there's like one verse that says that maybe I, I, there might be one, but there's like one that mm-hmm. I can think of in the old Testament law. That's like, by the way, this poor person don't show him favoritism either. The vast majority is saying, don't show favoritism to the people who already have power uh, because yeah, that's it, a temptation. Well, in the, and the, the misunderstanding there, right. Is, is that, uh, and tell me if you, if, if this is consistent with your, with your understanding, the, the idea I believe is this as a judge, in a particular case where you are adjudicating the outcome of, of a, you know, in, in a, the context of litigation, right? Don't favor the side of the, the poor litigant simply because they're poor, right? You're, you're, you're meant to, to, uh, to dispense justice in that context. It's it that, so to put, to put it in our context, right? That, that command is written to judges. It's not written to legislators. Right, right. Right, mm-hmm. right. Uh, legislators are, in fact, commanded to show favoritism to the poor. You're not supposed to levy a grain tax on the poor. Right, right? absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, so what you want is a, is a system of laws that we might describe as progressive. And then you want judges who don't show favoritism. Right. Uh, I mean, how, how is, I, I just, that's, you know, sometimes I just wonder if these misunderstandings are intentional. Right. I mean, like, I, like, how is that complicated? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. In your experience, what are some of the most pervasive and significant misunderstandings uh, among say the average American Christian approaching the old Testament, uh, in terms of hermeneutics, mm-hmm. what are the, what are the biggest obstacles to understanding? Yeah, that's a great question. I'll start off by saying, um, in, I teach, uh, old Testament survey to a lot of people. And once, and at the, uh, day of finals, um, I'm sitting at my desk and you know, they're like, the exam is like super easy. And there's like this question on basically like summarize the significance of the narrative, the Exodus narrative. And so this guy like sheepishly comes up to me in front and um, so I'm sitting there and he said, uh, he points to the question about the Exodus. He's like, this is the one about the guy with the boat, right? Uh, And what? Yeah. Yeah. So, so of course I'm like, what am I doing with my life? Why am I even teaching? You know, <laughs> no, this isn't the one about the guy, about the guy with the boat the uh, guy with the uh, boat. Oh, <laughs> so I would say that, that kind of, <laughs> that kind of encapsulates the, one of the main problems with uh, understanding the old Testament is that, is that culturally speaking, like as a group of people, we've really lost touch with the stories and the narratives of the old testament and so when often uh this isn't like i'm I'm speaking in generalities okay like i'm sure that there are like examples that can be cited to to show that i'm like you know way off or whatever but generally speaking i think when we hear the old testament preached it is like a moralistic sermon like be this Mm. way not be that way Mm. um and i think that what we need is just a deep and rich understanding of storytelling hmm. and seeing the kind of the grand narrative of scripture as it plays out in these stories of 
our ancestors, the ancestors of our faith, you know? And so, and, and so I guess, yeah, like the big problem would be just the overall lack of knowledge of those stories. You know, they haven't, we don't have the same cultural memory or cultural understanding of the biblical texts that the Israelites had or that first century Jews had. Um, and it kind of makes sense when you think about like we have, we can watch Netflix, you know, you know what I mean? Instead of like reading about Abraham or, or telling our kids about Abraham or something like that. So, um, and, and storytelling, it, it seems, it seems like, um, like the, uh, didactic teaching in the new Testament is more popular, um, than kind of the, Hey, here's this story about Abraham and he almost kills his kid and he has sex with a woman that's his wife's slave. You know, it's like com these complex narratives that you're like, what in the world are you supposed to do with this? It's a lot easier just to jump over to like, um, you know, the, the New Testament and, and pull out some logical, consistent statements, you know? Yeah, I mean, so, it's, it's, it's like part of the this modern fundamentalist type frame, right? We don't where where there's almost I'll say that there there's a resistance to even acknowledging really narrative or perspective or mm -hmm. these layers of complication. Mm -hmm. Right. And like the the upshot of the 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 binding of Isaac is that like, oh, Abraham did this thing that was really tough. Right. Right. That he didn't want to do. Right. Mm -hmm. Nothing nothing about his struggle with wait, wait a second, is God actually like, am I just hearing voices or like, right. Is this actually what God's telling me to do? Not, none, not, nothing about the struggle with with sort of moral cognition or like his. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing about the dilemma in terms of moral reasoning, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the you should put it in Kierkegaard's phrase like the the fear and trembling. Right. Yeah, and if you think about like the story of the judges, like Samson, you you read about oh, the, here's this strong man that did great things for God, but you like. Mm -hmm. You like roll that back a bit. And you're like, okay, like, sure. Like go and like be a strong person and do great things for God. Like, yeah, like do that. that that'd be great. But you, if you like pull back for a minute, you're like, wait a minute. Here's this guy. He, he like tied foxes tails together and set them on fire. I mean like that, that is cruel, you know? And, and he, he broke all the, all the, all the laws that he was supposed to keep as a Nazarite. He, exploits people he's only out for himself he's like the supreme example of selfishness and i mean he's a great american right <laughs> i mean he could be elected today to any any office right and then in the end like kind of his last great act is to commit suicide and kill a whole bunch of other people with him and, and so we need to rather than just like moralizing that story i think we need to sit for a while with the moral ambiguity and think about like like, what is God doing here? Like, what is the purpose of the story? Why is it even, why is it even in the Bible? And, and what's it, what's it telling us about kind of the state of, of the culture in that moment? And what does it tell us about us that we look at his story and we gl glorify his like superhuman strength rather than thinking through his like abject immorality, you know? And all the poor choices that got yes. him. To that yeah. point, like, it's like the, the thing that he did wrong was to let Delilah cut his hair. Right. Yeah. Cause that like, that's the one rule he actually kept. Right. For the most part. Mm -hmm. And you know, and then it's like, oh, that's the tragedy, man. He just, he let her cut his hair and then that, you know, then he was done for. Yeah. And then, and then the, the, <laughs> the kind of the corollary to that is like, oh, well, you can't trust women. Right. And so like, even oh, that story man. gets flipped around to this misogynistic, 
like Delilah is the bad guy in, in that narrative. That's how you yeah. know it comes out. And it's like, wait, no, like, yeah, she, she probably shouldn't have tricked him or whatever, but she, you know, like that, I don't think the narrative focuses on Delilah and and the wiles of of women, you know. That is certainly not the point of the story. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, one of our one of our uh I'll say interlocutors on Twitter, whose name I won't mention, but whose name you would most certainly know, was just tweeting this morning about uh, Jezebel, right? You know, the way that word gets thrown around? Yes. So, so, so my, my, my wife grew up in a sort of subculture of this evangelical subculture where things like, like where, where men will refer to woman as a Jezebel or yeah. re- mm-hmm. make reference like the spirit of the Jezebel. Spirit of Jezebel. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. So I had never heard any of that. I, like I grew up in the SBC, but I'd never heard that. So when my wife and I were dating, she would tell me about this and other things. I mean, you can, you can fill in the rest of the, that sure. subculture based on that description alone, I imagine. And I just sort of, I, I was like, man, of course that's awful and abusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I sort of, chalked it up to like, I, I was like, I, I think maybe for some reason where she grew up, like she just knew like more crazy people than most people. <laughs> and I didn't realize how pervasive it was. And so when I did finally get on Twitter and start interacting with a bunch of these people, I, I had to apologize to my wife. I was like, sweetheart, I, I did. I had no idea that this was like a thing. I thought you just knew some crazy people. Right. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that guy, he's out there today you know, just this morning. And I believe he was referring to our vice president. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. 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 yeah Cause you know, when women don't just do what you say, it's, it's the spirit of Jezebel. Like that's gotta be what it is. Right. Exactly. Unreal. Yeah. Unreal. It is unreal. We're all, all too real. Okay. So, so, so just a, a failure to appreciate narrative and like layers of meaning and the complexity of situations that are morally salient. Uh, mm-hmm. so you would, you'd say that that's probably one of the bigger sort of obstacles. Yeah. 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 And then also um, kind of reading the old Testament moralistically, like trying to find some sort of like, I mean, I don't like finding a lesson isn't the right way to frame it, but saying these stories are there to say like, do this, don't do that or something like that. You know? Well, well, they're sort of read. This isn't to say that they're uh, that they don't, that people don't read the text literally because we're speaking about people who do, mm-hmm. but they read, the stories as though they're reading fairy tales, right? Like this is a thing that actually happened, but the takeaway is not something complex that I need Mm -hmm. to struggle with. The takeaway is like, here's the good guy and here's the bad guy. And here's the moral of the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. I'm struck by the ways in which scripture and even the new Testament with the different perspectives that are offered by the gospels, right? The way in which scripture has this level of complexity that in say Anglo Western Anglo literature, you know, we had to get to like the distinctively modern period of literature to get to the point where, you know, you don't have like an omniscient narrator, right. You know, but, and it's, it's been right there in the Bible all along. Right. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. In a sense we have an an omniscient narrator, of course, but, but that, you know, that's not how the text is presented. Yeah. And you know, Um, you know, another thing I think is kind of problematic is like not a, having a robust understanding of ancient narration context and like mm-hmm. the whole, the whole scope of scripture too. So going back to like 
Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, you know, where Sarah gives uh, Hagar to Abraham. Sarah gives essentially her slave to Abraham to be his uh, his concubine or uh, sex slave is, is kind of how we would frame that now or talk about that now. And whenever the Lord lets, uh, you know, she Hagar runs away, goes back to Sarah or like and then eventually Hagar runs away this other time and is like set free, you know, and then she's allowed to leave with Ishmael. And then the Lord appears to Hagar and, you know, she's this, she names him the God who sees and the, and the Lord provides for Hagar and he provides for Ishmael and Ishmael grows up and, and, you know, all of this. So when I, growing up, when I hear this story, what I usually, the way it was the kind of the lesson there for me was like, oh, Ishmaelites, that's where Arabs come from. Uh, and like, we know that they're all terrible and horrible. Right. So like, that's, that's kind of how that story was put. Like the Ishmaelites are bad, Hagar bad, but in the old Testament law, like if we read like one of, if you don't treat a slave the way that you're supposed to treat your slaves, one of the, the penalties to the slave master is that the slave gets to go free. And so if we think if we have that in mind when we're reading the story about Hagar getting being able to leave and then God providing for her and for Ishmael, it is a rebuke to Abraham, right? To to take this to to give this woman her freedom. And and so it's tempting to read Hagar in this only negative light, as like this is um, you know, this is the bad person in this narrative. But if we kind of read between the lines there and have an understanding of laws in the Old Testament, we can see like, oh, actually, like her getting her freedom is telling Abraham that he has not treated her rightly or that Sarah hasn't treated her rightly, you know. On the list of things that occasion God's judgment against Israel, judgments. Um, where does injustice rank and how is injustice typically related to idolatry? For example, there, when, when you see the imprecations of the prophets, often they'll talk about idolatry and they'll talk about injustice mm-hmm. and often the idolatry they're talking about, but maybe not always, but often the idolatry has to do with embracing some kind of fertility God or something like that, mm-hmm. which correlates to avarice, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so you see, you see, uh, they're given over to essentially worshiping wealth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they're also doing injustice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so could you unpack that? Like, like where does injustice rank on the list of, of, of things that, that occasion God's justice sure. and, and how does it relate to idolatry? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say two about the, um, you know, worshiping gods in the ancient Near East. So they would worship like this fertility god, Asherah or Baal. Um, The big issue there um, is manipulating the gods, I think. So you try to appease this god or that god in order to get what you want from them. It's what you see in the Jephthah narrative where God's where Jephthah says like whatever comes out of my house to greet me if you give me this victory whatever comes out of my house to greet me I'm going to sacrifice it to you and that is an that is a a that understanding he's Jephthah's trying to manipulate God into giving him victory 
And he's saying, I will give you this if you give me that. And so when the Israelites are worshiping these fertility gods, like that's what they're doing. They're trying to manipulate these gods, trying to appease them in order to get something from them. And so that gets that they carry that over, that gets carried over into their relationship with Yahweh. And that forms part of idolatry. You know, so this this not not only is idolatry like worshiping false gods, it's also worshiping God wrongly. And so we see. Which tell me if this is right. That's that's why you see like the first two commandments. Yes. Right. Yes. It's like wait wait yes. wait a second. Why is God repeating himself? Like he only had ten. Like what? Why right. why why did he have one twice? Yes. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or like like mm-hmm. he could have really only come up with nine, and so he's like, all right, I'll just put this one two different ways. Like no no it's <laughs> di- no they're different things. Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. And so, um, like I, like I mentioned earlier, you have the. Uh, Jesus saying that the greatest commandment is to love God. And then the second commandment like that is to love others. And so the idolatry and and injustice are intimately intertwined with one another. Like you can't, you cannot have one without the other. You just can't. And so speaking of like the book of Micah, uh, like I mentioned earlier, let me just like read this. It's like five, six verses. Um, the, Lay it the on me. Yeah, the book of Micah opens up with this like horrifying scene of God saying, like, I'm going to come down and it's going to be horrible. Okay, so listen, all you peoples, pay attention, earth and everyone in it. The Lord God will be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is leaving his place and coming down to trample the heights of the earth. The mountains will melt beneath him and the valleys will split apart like wax near a fire, like water cascading down a mountainside. And so then he goes to give on the reason. And this will happen because of Jacob's rebellion and the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Isn't it Samaria? And so he's referring to false worship. What is uh, And what is the high place of Judah? A high place is uh, where you would worship. Uh, isn't it Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the countryside, a planting area for a vineyard. I will roll her stones into the valley and expose her foundations. So there he's just in an agricultural context, he's just saying, like, I'm going to completely destroy your ability to grow food. And then he goes on, all her carved images will be smashed to pieces. All her wages will be burned in the fire, and I will destroy all her idols. Since she collected the wages of a prostitute, they will be used again for a prostitute. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's how the book of Micah opens, with this fierce theophany, God coming down to destroy his people because of their false worship. And their idolatry. Okay. But then the rest of the book, Micah says, by the way, like you preachers are uttering empty lies. You are terrible. Like the, the prophets and the preachers are lying to you. And in fact, you like them lying to you. And then he and says, they, and, and, and uh, just so tell uh, <laughs> the thing is, the prophet, I think that we think when we think of like false teachers and false prophets, right? It are, the, are these people, we, we think of like Elmer Gantry or something, right? Like this guy who knows he's a fraud. And that, that right. could be, right. like that, that's some false teachers might know they're false teachers, mm-hmm. but I don't see anything in the text there to indicate that the false prophets know that they're false prophets. Right. And yeah, they are well, part of, they are part of the, ins- the, the institution, like the structures of the religious establishment. Right. Sorry. Go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. I interrupted. Go ahead. Yeah, no, 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 it's fine. And like, that's, that's one of the things that Micah gets into is he's saying like, like the, the false prophets are saying, are using the right words and they're saying the right things. And like, the big question is like, like what I often ask when I see people 
like prosperity preachers or whatever i'm like do they really believe what they're saying or are they like are they honest with themselves you know i don't know so so mike starts out with this idolatry issue and then he goes on to say you are you religious leaders and you political leaders are destroying my people so in chapter two there's like this incredible passage where he says let me let me find it here Okay, so after God says, like, you've committed idolatry, like, you're going to be burned up, you're going to be destroyed. And then he says, like, hey, you preachers are lying. And then he says, now, listen, leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, aren't you supposed to know what is just? You hate good and love evil. And then, like, listen to this, man. You tear off people's skin and strip their flesh from their bones. You eat the flesh of my people and you strip their skin from them and break their bones. You chop them up like flesh for the cooking pot, like meat in a cauldron. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide their face from them at that time because of the crimes they have committed. So Micah intertwines idolatry and injustice. Like because of this false worship, they are complete, or maybe not even because of it. There's some sort of relationship. I I don't know if it's necessarily causal, but there's a relationship between worshiping idols and ripping the flesh off of God's people. Obviously he's using hyperbole here, but throughout the rest of the book, the big issue is like, Hey, you are exploiting people. You should be protecting these orphans and widows and and the foreigner and the poor but instead you're exploiting them you're taking from them like i said intertwined with idolatry in chapter seven like at at the at the end toward the end of the book he's talking about the political leaders he calls them officials and the judges and talking about the uh them demanding bribes and then also colluding with powerful people to defraud and exploit the weak and and the powerless in society so so yeah uh to answer the question i would say injustice is right up there at the very top of the list um and in fact it reveals like what you worship and Mm. in micah 6 that famous verse where he says god uh, he's told you what is good and what the lord requires to act justly to love faithfulness or and that word is like hesed or covenant faithfulness um like we talked about earlier this the people of israel are in this covenant relationship with each other and with god he's saying like this is what god has told you to do act justly love keep love or keep covenant faithfulness with one another and with god and then walk humbly with your god so there he's saying he he combines this this vertical relationship and the horizontal relationship um and and before that what kind of occasions this is the people of of Israel saying, acting like like acting like well they don't know what to do. There's like well what should I do? Should I come with burnt offerings with thousands of rams and ten thousands of streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn the offspring of my body for my sin? And and God responds with like no, like you already know what I want. I've already told you. It's for you to act justly to love covenant faithfulness and to walk humbly with God, you know? Um, this was the irony to me of these, these folks who uh, were complaining about like, well, you know, I went to go buy a toaster or whatever, and I had to wear a mask, right? Yes. yes. And they're complaining about like having to wear a mask to church or whatever. Right. And it's like, well, so you're wearing the purpose of wearing the mask or the purpose for, you know, keeping yourself at home is to protect vulnerable people. Yes. Right? Well, at the very least. But it's, but it's to protect others. Yes. Right? Yes. And so it's like they're 
complaining about basically needing to adopt practices that are designed to protect the vulnerable among us. And then their sort of principal complaint was the, the restrictions on worship. Right. And it's sort of like, yeah, I mean, like, don't, don't bother with the worship. Cause like, if, if you can't even, if you can't even be bothered to protect the most vulnerable people in our society, like literally God does not want to hear it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there's really yeah. no reason for That's you right. to be going to church actually. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, he, and he says like the failure to love or to protect the rights and of others is, a, is a demonstrates that your, that your worship is false. Um, mm-hmm. and, and until you get this other thing, right. Don't even bother. And, and I wonder if that is also points to just this failure to like be in a loving relationship with actual humans. I, I mean, I think it does. Cause like in my church, I go to a, a pretty small Southern Baptist church and in our congregation, like, and I'm in Louisiana right now. So let the hearer understand, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, and like mask wearing mask was like no problem in our congregation because like we have someone who is a cancer survivor. We have someone who's, you know, their, their, uh, a, uh, their niece is on the, like, like had these lung problems and had to have like all of these surgeries and like heart surgeries and stuff like that. And then we have older people in our congregation. And so like, we were like, yeah, we'll wear a mask because we know these people and we love them. You know, it, it, so it wasn't like I, no, like no one that I know of in my church was like, you know, bristled at that because they thought like, oh, this is something small that I can do to protect the life of this person that I love deeply. You know, yeah. So I don't even I, I just don't get the whole pushback of saying like, yeah, that's infringing upon my rights. Yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense, man. Yeah, yeah. And so that gets to to sort of one of the things we started with, which is that like in the in the biblical paradigm, membership in a community is predicated on one's, you know, as you say, like it's a family. And so like it, you know, to put it in terms of obligation is almost not strong enough. Right. It's it's more right. it's more it's it, it's more of a um an intrinsic motivation. But it, membership in the community is predicated on the recognition that one has obligations to others. So, so, yes, so yes. you have, you have, for example, the sort of rite of passage in a bar or a bat mitzvah is literally to become one of the obligations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? right. And then, and then in our sort of modern Western paradigm, membership in the community is predicated on rights. Mm-hmm. What makes me an American is that I have rights right. against you. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. You got to treat me in certain ways. That's mm-hmm. what makes that's Yeah. You know, um, but but in the biblical paradigm, what it is for me to be a member of a community is to recognize that I must treat you in certain ways. Yes, that, that that's the that's the that's the essence mm-hmm. of my my membership in the community. Yeah. yeah, and and like our unwillingness to do that, I think, reveals our lack of trust or maybe security in that community because like we're unable to give up our rights, like. The, like Paul would say, we're unable to focus on loving our our family members, the other people in that covenant relationship with us, 
we can't focus on loving them because we're too we're clutching our own rights you know you know like i gotta protect myself and i mean it's it's cultural like right like that is like the american independent free spirit protect my rights like you talked about and it's one of the ways that the church can push back against our culture and saying like no actually like we're christians we're living in relationship a covenant relationship with one another just like israel and so we're gonna give up our rights and instead love others and trust that they will do the same to us. And that's really scary, man. And, and it's hard to do. Um, but I think that is the biblical model. That And then, and obviously when we read the Old Testament, like that was a, that was a big problem. The people of Israel failed to do that. And then the, re, the recourse of the exploited is to take that to the Lord, to go back to God. Just like when I talked about my experience growing up in an abusive family, like my recourse was to pray in precatory Psalms was to ask God to do justice on my behalf. And man, it, mm. it, I think it requires a tremendous amount of, of trust in the Lord, trust in the people around us. And yeah, that's, it's hard to do. It, it's hard. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of like you've got, so, you know, you're in a, a sibling relationship, let's say this, this just came to mind in that, that beautiful description of, of the recourse being to take it to God. It's like, um, you've got this sibling relationship, right. And you're, uh, you know, let's say one sibling is, is the older, bigger sibling is picking on the younger, weaker sibling. Right. And the younger, weaker sibling says like, Hey, can you take it easy on me? no, really like, please stop. Or I'm going to tell dad. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's like, as the, as the bigger, older sibling, if you have any sense whatsoever, right. You're going to say, okay, I can, like, I can be cool. Cause mm -hmm. like you do not want dad right. to show yeah, up and straighten yeah. the situation out. You do not want that. Right. Dude, just yesterday, uh, my kids, I have five, a five-year-old and two, three-year-olds and the five-year-old Ari was uh, like took a toy away from my three-year-old, like right there in front of me. And I was like, you know, I took it back and gave it to him. I was like, hey, man, like when, when, when you're bigger than someone and you take something away from them, like that's called bullying. You're like that is not OK. Like your obligation as the and I did use the word obligation. Um, so maybe I shouldn't have used that word. But it's like your obligation is to take care of your brother, not to take things from him. Like when you're the more powerful person in a relationship, you look out for the less powerful person. And, and so, mm -hmm. yeah, but the natural tendency is to take the toy from the person who's smaller than me, but that's not okay. You know? And it's like the, it's yeah. like the church folks, the church folks who we have these conversations with a lot of them. It's almost like, man, do you not believe that dad is there? Right. And, and that he doesn't. Yeah. Like where's the disconnect is. Yeah. Either you think God is okay with this, or you just don't think he's right. coming for you. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and when you read the, the Bible and it says that like God hears the cries of orphans and widows, these classes in Israelite society that were exploited and powerless. Uh, I mean, that should make you afraid, right? To exploit and mistreat those people but for some reason like it doesn't even in you know you had susan cadoni on here earlier um and the whole sexual abuse crisis in the sbc is like a big problem obviously and kind of a corollary to that problem is whenever allegations come out you have kind of this horde of people rushing to the defense of the person who's been accused of abuse um 
when that person already has the power, they don't need to be protected. What we need mm -hmm. to do is listen to the voice of the powerless and protect mm -hmm. that person, you know? Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, we, we put ourselves, like you just said, like we put ourselves in a place where dad is coming, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. and, and so like, it's like God gives us this opportunity to set things right ourselves in, in a sense uh, by listening and hearing. And our immediate response is to go and like, uh, what, what's the guy's name? Ravi, Zach Ravi Zacharias is a perfect example of this. He, there's all these allegations for years about him having, you know, lying about his credentials. Um, and then the uh, sexual abuse and the sexting scandal and all of that with Lorianne Thompson. And there's this like crowd of people who just want to rush and, and, and uh, malign Lorianne and continue to, to prop up Ravi Zacharias rather than taking a step back and saying like, you know what, maybe this person isn't lying. Maybe there is something to this. And of course, like as it, uh, as more comes out, we're learning more and more like, yeah, there definitely is something going on here. Have been more and more allegations, more and more people distancing themselves. And like, while I'm, while I'm on a, a uh, sitting on my pedestal here, I would just point out that it's frustrating to see people waiting to quote, believe a sex abuse survivor until it's safe to do so until there's mm -hmm. no, it, it's easy to like believe someone or take the side of a weak or powerless person when it doesn't cost you anything. When kind of the dust is settled and there's an obvious uh, villain in the story, it's easy to jump over and say like, Oh yeah, like obviously this guy's a villain. Um, but to believe that person and to protect that person, stand up for that person when it costs you something like that, that's different, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's easier to, it's easier to talk about what you would do in the imaginary situations, you know, involving firearms and a home invader. Right. 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 And just sort of, you know, fantasize and, and ruminate on those really remote possibilities in, yeah. in, in which you might be called upon to actually stick up for someone who is in physical danger or something like that. It's far easier to do all of that yeah. than in, in situations that actually present themselves to you in the actual world, right? Uh, stick up for the person who doesn't have the institutional power. Yes. In a particular mm -hmm. context. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. right. That's right. <laughs> when it might cost you something, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just just for the record, Russ is 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 not just uh, sort of speculating about this, right? Ru Russ has been in a situation where he stood up to an, uh, an institution where he was teaching about uh, some comments that were made in in uh, in chapel, and the the institution said, uh, "Hey, man, take it back, or you're fired." And and Russ was like, "Nah, not taking it back." <laughs> yeah. So, so this isn't, this isn't, you know, speculating or, or anything like that. I mean, this, this has had very, a very real Russ doing what he's talking about has had a very real impact in his own life. So, and thank you for that, Russ. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, man. Um, in that whole situation, the, uh, one of the things that rings out to me when I'm like, when I, when I reflect on that, what happened is the, the president of the college where I was teaching said, you're taking on one of the five most powerful men in Sinlaw with Sinlaw, central Louisiana. So it's kind of like saying, 
I, I mean, the the statement, like one of the five most powerful people in one of the smallest places in <laughs> in the country, you know, it's, it gets to be a little absurd. But but when he said that, like my thought was like, well, one, I'm not taking anyone on. And two, like that's the whole problem is that we run to the defense of the powerful instead of trying to set things right. We don't want to advocate for some kind of theocracy, right? Right, right. So we're not going to try to establish an institutional order that looks exactly like how things are set up in the Old Testament. But uh -huh. there are the rules in the Old Testament. And then uh -huh. there are sort of principles that we can take from the rules about yeah. how things are set up. And you might uh -huh. take those principles as a kind of paradigm. There are principles underlying the, the system of law, principles of justice that are underlying the system of law in the Old Testament. And the system of law in the Old Testament is a kind of paradigm example of what it looks like to put those principles into, say, a legal code in practice. Mm -hmm. So how might we take the Old Testament paradigm as an example of the kinds of institutional order and the kinds of laws that we should advocate for uh, in our own society. So for example, you see principles of like progressive taxation, where there are certain kinds of taxes that you don't levy against the poor, mm -hmm. that you do levy against it. You don't levy a grain tax on the poor. So that's just take one you know, easy example. But, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so, so, so as we as Christians advocate for the objective truth, about what people deserve and what we owe to each other and for how that should be reflected in our, the laws of our political community, what lessons can we take from the Old Testament? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and, and it's a difficult, a difficult question, I think, because, you know, like well, that's said, why I'm asking you, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're not, we're not a theocracy. You know, the United States is not a theocracy um, and, and we don't, we don't want to be. Um, and, and yet I think if we look, so, so if we're thinking about, okay, taking like, you know, drawing out application. Um, we have to think about what do the, the laws in the Old Testament, like what is their, what's their underlying principle? You know, and I, I think we would, if we go back to Genesis, you know what, when I, when I uh, speak at my church, I always, I get made fun of because like, doesn't matter what, uh, what, it doesn't matter what passage I'm speaking. I always say like, okay, we need to go back to Genesis before we just think to think about what we're going to talk about today. Classic. And it's true um, because God made us in his image. He made, he made human beings in his image, all of us. And so when we look at the legislation in the Old Testament, like I said earlier, we have kind of this set of this one circle of relationship is the, the covenant relationship of the covenant community of Israel. And then they're treating each other like a, a family, looking out for the rights, I guess you'd say, of one another. And then outside of that, you have how Israel is supposed to relate to other people. And the principle there that God will bring up often when he's saying this is the way you relate to people outside of the covenant community is he says, once you were outside of this covenant community, <laughs> you were in slavery mm -hmm. in Egypt, and I brought you out of there and I established you as a covenant community. And so when people outside of your covenant community are it, are you when you're around them you need to remember that you were slaves in another country and you need to remember what that was like and let mm. that guide the way you 
react to those people. Let that guy the way that you treat those people. And so when we're looking at the Old Testament and saying, okay, I think we need to ask ourselves, like, what what's the theological principle here? And if we take Jesus's cue, right, of of loving God and loving our neighbor, when we advocate for legislation, um, I think we need to ask ourselves, like, does this love my neighbor? You know, so I'm grateful for, for example, religious freedom, thankful for that. But do I need to get like frothy mouthed? because I'm scared someone's going to take away my religious freedom or do I need to spend my time trying to protect other people? Does that make sense? So like, make, that makes perfect uh, sense. Yeah. 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 So I would say I, I like, I, 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 yeah, like I said, like I'm so grateful for the first amendment and, and for religious freedom, but you know, there was this situation in the midst of the kind of the beginning of the scandal breaking about that with the abuse of faith report and the sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention, kind of in the midst of the this, it was like toward the beginning, um, some like religious freedom issue came up and you had all of these people like, oh, it was the issue over, I want to say it was like over taxation or I don't know, I'm sure it was over taxation. <laughs> um, uh, it, it was like some, I, I wish I could remember off the top of my head the issue, but anyway, I can't. And you had all of these people, Southern Southern Baptist leaders um, and, and not leaders, just Southern Baptist people speaking out about the importance of religious freedom and protecting tax tax exemptions. I think it might have been the um, the housing allowance maybe was kind of coming under scrutiny, the housing allowance for pastors. I can't remember what hmm. it was, but it became this big religious, this, you know, well, not that big because I can't remember what it was. But so I just talked with Perry and Whitehead yesterday. I don't know if that they would stand behind this application that I'm about to lay out, but but they describe based on their data and their research a situation where talk of religious freedom is really coded language for we get to do what we want. Yes. In the name of religion. Right. Right. So mm-hmm. so so whether it's whether it was having to do with the housing allowance or or what like whatever the whatever the the uh, the pretext was, right? Yeah. 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 So something comes up like that, where people, where where a people will feel like like their religious freedom is being attacked, and all of a sudden, every people are up in arms and vocal about this. And yet, you have at the same same time this is happening, a like sluggishness to address sexual abuse in a denomination. Okay, mm-hmm. and and so like I'm seeing this play out, and it's so frustrating to get up in arms about certain legislation that you think is going to infringe upon your quote rights instead of working to redress wrongs. Like, you know, and, and so I think that the broader application there is as we're thinking about legislation or as we're thinking about like, how do we advocate in, in our political system and our culture today, I think we should take our cue from, the old testament's protection for the powerless and so rather than demanding our rights like why not at like work for the rights of others and then trust god to care for us you know yeah so, so i i that that really resonates with me and so the the central thesis of the book that i'm working on is that basically there are more or less two approaches to political engagement, right? So the job of government is to enforce the rule of law and the purpose of politics 
is to decide how the government's going to operate, what the laws are going to be, et cetera. Right. Mm -hmm. And there are, there are two very different paradigms for approaching politics. One paradigm is the special interest paradigm where I say, I'm going to advocate for laws and public policies that suit my interests, right. my special interests. Then there's a very different paradigm for political engagement, which says there's objective truth about what people deserve and what we owe to each other. Mm -hmm. And as it, as it happens, vulnerable people are vulnerable because they uh, aren't in a position to make other people recognize what they deserve mm -hmm. and what they are owed. Right. But as people who believe in objective moral truth about uh, what people deserve and what we owe to each other, i.e. justice, right? The only appropriate political objective for Christians is to seek to have laws and public policies that conform to the truth about what people deserve and what we owe to each other. And where I think, in my view, where we've gone wrong, at least based on what we talk about, and by we, I mean the, the self-appointed spokesman of yeah. evangelicalism, right? Based on what they talk about, they talk about Christianity like it's a special interest group. Like right. we're just right. one among all the special interest groups. And our job when we enter the political arena is to try to uh, get laws and public policies that give Christians wh what, what, what we want. I don't know. I mean, like doing stuff for Christians, whatever that's supposed to mean. I, I don't, I have no right. idea what that means. Right. Yeah, I that what you said resonates with me a lot. I mean, that's I think that's the core sort of misunderstanding in how, say, for at least the last two generations, going back to the moral majority and so on. I think that's that's where Christians have just got off the rails. Mm -hmm. You know, is is thinking that our political engagement should have something to do with what's best for us. Right. Mm -hmm. Like there's this this like bifurcation. You know, that's like. When I'm like in church or at church, I need to like do what's best for others. But when it comes to this other political engagement or whatever, I need to do what's best for me. Or maybe we're finally we're just being honest about what we care about and saying like, no, nah, we just we're just going to do what's best for us no matter what, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, because they're, they're in the in the way that that's come about, I think the the sort of comfort with me just being honest about it is this there's this been this ongoing narrative that like Christians are being picked on. And so mm -hmm. we need to stick up for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so there's this sense that it's like, okay, to be honest, that really we're just looking out for our own interests because if we don't protect ourselves, who's going to protect us? Yeah. So we got to go find yeah. rich and powerful people to defend our interests because mm -hmm. we're, we're, we are really the folks like white evangelical Christians are really the folks in our society who most need to be looked out for. Right. Don't you know? Yeah. And then, and then we end up in a situation like going back to the old Testament where we're like, Man, get us a Samson to come mm -hmm. and, and take care and kill all these Philistines for us, you know. Um, and so we end up, man, committing idolatry by trusting something or someone other than God to care for us, you know. And and, and we end up with a, yeah, it, it's not good. It's not it good puts me in mind of when the Israelites demanded a king. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And Samuel's like, no, you guys don't want this, man. Yeah. I was like, I just talked to God and God is, is saying, you guys really don't want a king because here's what he'll do. Yeah. He's going to enslave you. He's going to take your sons to war. Um, he's going to take your food. He's going to take your money. And then they're like, no, we really want a king over us, you know? 
And then the king they choose, Saul, is like a tight end, right? So he's like this humongous guy, like head and shoulders (laughs) above everyone else. Like, and so like, not only are they like, like, it's just, it, it, it's always funny to me that this dude they choose is like exactly like what you would expect, right? Like they, they're like, no, we want, we have this idea of a king and like, he's, he's giant and he's handsome and he can like kill a lot of people. And that's what we want, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, They picked him because he was tall. Right. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that, so that's, this is, this is apropos of nothing, but when I read the instruction to, to select leaders who have their house in order, yeah. my thought on that is this. People, people pick leaders for really stupid reasons. Yeah. And the leaders we pick can be manipulative and charming mm-hmm. and, and uh, can really abuse us, yeah. right? But, if, but the thing is that, that, that uh, I'll bet Saul's kids didn't really care about the fact that he's tall. Right. Charming. Or whatever, mm-hmm. right? So, in order to have your house, like, like your family doesn't care about the stupid stuff that tends to mislead the folks at church. Mm-hmm. It, it's not, it's not going to work with them. Right. The, the charm and the and the like, whatever, but you know, all the dumb stuff that attracts people mm-hmm. to to you know narcissistic type leaders. And so, if you if you look at how at whether they have their their house in order so to speak that will give you some insight that will that will sort of overcome some of these framing effects that tend to to obstruct our view of, of who our leaders ought to be one of the things that's kind of frustrating about podcasts like this is i feel like the people who are going to listen to it are the people who like already agree you know um, we're already predisposed to agree. Like when I first started, when I found myself swimming in the kind of social justice waters, um, whenever. So like, I didn't know that like the sex abuse crisis, I, I didn't know that existed until abuse of faith happens. And then I, I resigned from my job over, over all of that, that issue. Um, and I tried to write for like Southern Baptist outlets you know i tried to like i saw and they would not publish these things i wanted to write about so i wanted to write about sexual abuse crisis i wanted to write about uh social justice issues like loving our neighbors stuff like that and i would uh i, I think but biblical recorder posted one uh, or published one article i wrote so not only them but i and wanted to write about these issues and like how we can look at sexual abuse from a biblical and old testament perspective and they would not there's just crickets you know no one would want to wanted to publish this stuff. And I'm like, well, I'm a Southern Baptist. Like that's who I should be writing for. And that's the audience that needs to hear these things. Right. And, but then on the other hand, places like Sojourners and RNS and Red Letter Christians were like, yeah, dude, send us your stuff. Like let's, you know, and so they, they would publish these pieces that I'm writing, trying to engage scripture and look at issues of justice from the old Testament. And then because I'm writing for publications that will like publish and I told them straight like up front like when I would first contact these places like look I'm evangelical I'm super theologically conservative and they're like yeah we don't care you know just like write write some stuff like it'll be good and then I get like labeled by the people in my own camp like as a SJW you know whatever that is and so it's just kind of this frustrating situation I don't really know I don't know if this even like is is applicable or how we kind of navigate this. No, or- no, no, Russ, th- this is why I'm doing this podcast. And this is the, right at the core of it. So yes, please continue. Yeah, good, good. And so I don't, I don't know how to fix that issue, but it just, it seems like a problem. And, and I, 
it's frustrating that when I want to help people in my tribe or my camp address issues of justice from an Old Testament perspective, from a biblical perspective, and I'm like a card-carrying SBC, born and raised, have the degrees from the institutions and Baptist publications, like don't want to give me a voice, but those are the people I need to talk to. You know, they're the ones with the problem and more progressive publications will give me a voice. And then because I'm writing for the progressive publications, I'm suddenly a a leftist George Soros infiltrator, you know, (laughs) it's like, uh, yeah, I don't know, man, it's frustrating. And I will say ERLC says, you know, I've written some for them too um, about justice issues, but even that just kind of feeds into the narrative of being a George Soros funded because, you know, uh, so anyway, I don't know how to, I don't know how to fix the problem. Maybe you do. Well, I wouldn't, I, I don't have, you know, any easy solutions. I think of the problem in terms of there's a market and there's difficulty with being granted access to the market because the Mm. people who control the market are not interested in. Yeah. I mean, I I've been thinking of the powers that be, I guess. Right. And this isn't ever, you know, there, there are exceptions, but like take seminary presidents, for example, right. They answer to a board of trustees. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, their ability to do exactly what they want to do is somewhat limited in that regard. Mm-hmm. But in any case, the, the folks, I don't have anyone in particular in mind, just for the record, when I, when I use this metaphor. Mm-hmm. So, so, sure, so sure. just so we're clear, but you might think of it as sort of like the grand inquisitor from the brothers Karamazov as sort of established a denomination. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, the, and the, the key idea there is that the grand inquisitor has a very clear idea of his being on the side of truth, mm-hmm. but Jesus Christ himself could show up and say, what are you doing? And the grand inquisitor replies, I'm good here. Like, I really don't. Yeah. I've, I've got this under control. Right and, right. and and Christ is like, but, but what you're doing is wrong. And and the grand inquisitor is like, no, no, it's not. It's right. Mm-hmm. Cause like, that's, that's up to me now. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really the only, the only way that you, that some of the things that we've been talking about, like just refusing any kind of institutional reform that would create obstacles to serial sexual predators roaming around the denomination. Yeah. How on earth is, is, is that controversial right. that something must be done? Mm-hmm. And then what you have is, you know, the whole SJW thing, right? Then it's like, if you think that institutional reform should be Im- implemented, you are a raging feminist. And, uh, uh, yeah, just all this, and you're part of this leftist, like, no, 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 no. I just, I think that there should be reforms instituted so that people can't just go around abusing other people. Yeah. Right. How how is that even controversial? Right. It's yeah, it shouldn't be. Yeah. You know, there, there was a, a one, one person's case that, uh, Jin Lyell, I don't know if, if you guys aren't familiar, uh, your listeners aren't familiar with Jin Lyell, you should um, use use the Google machine and search Jin Lyell Baptist Press. And uh, when, when that all kind of, when that happened, it started coming out and I'd like ask someone like, why not just say, I'm sorry? You know, why mm-hmm. not Baptist Press just say, I'm sorry? 
And the response was, it's the lawyers. It's always the lawyers. And, and mm. with the kind of um, subtext of like being that opens, if you, if you say, I'm sorry, like we totally screwed up, we were wrong. That opens up you up to uh, litigation, right? And you're, and, and so then you might be financially responsible or, or whatever. And I think that is a concern for a lot of people. You know, they want to say they, they have lawyers telling them what to say, like in these sexual abuse cases, I guess like as a, my frustration with that is like, as a Christian, like, why don't we just do what's right instead of trying to clutch our money? And maybe like, maybe there should be a real world actual consequence and just do the right thing. Like, okay. So a lawyer told you not to apologize is the lawyer, Jesus Christ. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, without, without, without downplaying or trivializing the prospect of like costly litigation, like at a certain point, if you have two options and and one of them is face the possibility of some kind of legal entanglement mm-hmm. on the one hand, or on the other hand, do what is obviously the right thing and stop doing what is the wrong thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, 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 no one wants to go to court. Right. Right. That's not fun. Yeah. Well, of course, you know, there's the option of there, there are options you could set, you could settle, you could say like, yeah, I did the wrong thing. And sometimes you have to pay money mm-hmm. when you do the wrong thing. Like sometimes that's just, sometimes, sometimes you have to face to take one of their favorite phrases, the natural and logical consequences of your actions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you're not, you're not immune from that just because you're, you happen to be a person of influence mm-hmm. in a particular religious denomination. Right. <laughs> yeah. Man. Yeah. People, mul- I mean, we, we, and we see examples all throughout scripture of people multiplying their sins because they're trying to avoid the consequences of their actions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These are the people running the denomination. Well, Russ, you've been very generous with your time. Thanks for having me on, man. It was, uh, it was a really fun conversation and God really does care about these issues. You know, um, uh, it's not just a bunch of like leftist SJW CRTI agenda. It's right there. It's right there in the old Testament that we should be loving our neighbor well and protecting the powerless. Mm-hmm.